Greetings and welcome to the Listen to Your Fit Test podcast with myself, Koja Buffum. If it's the first time you're joining us, this podcast is an extension of a book I recently published, also called Listen to Your Footsteps, which is a collection of essays, reflections, and poems on a range of t- subjects, including fatherhood, identity, parenting, music, etc. In this podcast, I take the opportunity to chat to people that I know within the arts, culture, um, and design space, uh, particularly Africans, and get a sense of their journey. So my guest today is a good friend and artist and create all-round creative. Ndaba Zubs, the last letter Mabuya, is more known as a rapper, um, but he's so much more than that. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So we're going to jump straight into it because I also know time is a time is a thing. Indeed. And 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 we're freestyling. So first of all, thanks for coming on this thing. And um, I'm sorry to break it to you that you are also still part of the experiment. The experiment is going to run for a while now. I'm happy to be part of the experiment. If you promise me that on your 150th episode, once you've gotten it absolutely sparkling <laughs> right. You'll invite me back to touch base again. No doubt, no doubt. So now that there's a recording on episode one hundred and fifty. <laughs> the recording now, bro. You're yeah, done. it's all good. It's all good. If we if we get that far, like uh, I suspect, we'll <laughs> by that stage we'll have like proper studio. We'll have proper people working on stuff. And oh, it's just a, oh. it's just a matter of coming in and sitting in the same room and having and and sharing a bottle of something and having a conversation. I look forward to it, man. So to start off, uh, one of my favorite questions, which is semi-cheesy, I'm going to add to it, um, but where did you grow up and what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I hear what you say when you say semi-cheesy. Um, I did a lot of my growing up pre-adolescence in Zimbabwe in Harare. I was born in Zambia in the 70s, um, but most of my growing up as a child was in Harare. So my childhood memories, primary school, high school, you know, um, those are all in Harare, you know, Um, that's where I did my growing up. But like becoming a man, all of that happened in South Africa, um, 1996 to this day, I've lived here and it's been, it's been an incredible journey of becoming where I really have gone from a boy to a man, you know, in so many ways. What I wanted to be growing up, I mean, like most children, I remember my earliest memory of a career path was to be a pilot, you know? I was like, oh, I wanna grow up to fly planes. Yeah. You know? uh, which is, it's funny how many people dream of flying planes when they're kids. Um, and it's never realistic, right? Because often you learn, because often you learn, you learn afterwards that you need maths. Like you need to be very good at maths. <laughs> that's that that that's what changed yeah, my 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 trajectory. Really, that's probably what did it. I mean, so you know, um, now that I know exactly what a pilot, you know, I have pilot friends, and I know what it takes to be a pilot. I don't even that was it was very unrealistic. But 
from an early age, I knew I'd get into the arts, you know. I knew I'd get into the arts. I loved science fiction. I loved, you know, books like Enid Blyton, Lewis Carroll. You know, I loved, um, you know, Isaac Asimov. You know, like I, I read a lot of otherworldly, you know, futuristic, fantastical books. So I kind of knew I'd do something in, in, in art or art and creativity related, but also something to do with tech, you know, and that's exactly what I've grown up to become. What, I mean, what, what brought you to South Africa, 96? University, bro. Rhodes University. Um, I came to study accounting. I ended up graduating with a BCom in information systems, economics, and commercial law. Accounting? Like I, I, I actually, oh, this is man. the this is the first I hear of it. So it's like it's fascinating, and also yeah. going to Rhodes because, I mean, for for a lot of people, kind of southern southern Africa, if you understand kind of schooling or tertiary in southern Africa, Rhodes is always very known for its journalism, its journalism degrees. Yeah, yeah, and and we were yo man, we were, we were inundated by the journalists, man, at, at, on campus. I remember they, they pretty much dominated the entire town because Grahamstown was pretty much Rhodes University at the time, right? So it was a bunch of journalists who went on to do incredible things in South Africa. But no, nah, we, we had a computer science department. We had a biochemistry department too at Rhodes, but you're right, you're right. Rhodes was famous for its journal department, which was just world-class really. I love the BJN students as well. We created music with some of these BJN students. Um, who was studying journalism. But why Rhodes for me? Because I think it was a natural segue from Harare to outside of Zim as a different sort of living experience. I had a lot of friends from high school on Rhodes campus. My sister had already gone to UCT at the time. She was studying law and I think she was in her second year by the time I started my first. So I didn't want to be where my sister was. Um, so that contributed to me going to Rhodes. And, and also like, I mean, I don't know, maybe subliminally, subconsciously, because I knew that I was born in what was former Northern Rhodesia, and I grew up in what was known as Southern Rhodesia. There might have been some kind of subconscious ushering towards Rhodes, Rhodes, Rhodes University. Yeah. You know? But it, no, look, I think it spoke a lot more to my artsy brain as well. Um, I remember doing a tour of where I was going to stay. I was going to stay at a race called Leo Marquette at, um, at UCT. And then I went there first, I checked it out. It was beautiful, it was just gorgeous. And then I went to Rhodes and I checked that one out. And then I picked between the two based on just the energy of the town. You know, Grahamstown really felt homely. It felt like a, it felt like a village. It felt like family, mm. it felt nurtured. You know, um, it, it didn't have that big city bustle, which at the time I wasn't, I wasn't about. So one of the things that you, uh, um, I would, I would talk, one of the things I find interesting and entertaining about, I guess, this country and this society that we've come up in is that um, in different ways, we've each been defined by, by one particular thing. And, and you was, was Zabs the rapper, you know, Zabs the last letter. Um, so while you were growing up, uh, when, when did that kind of, when did that bug bite? And when did it transition from just, uh, this is something I do to, let me build something out of this? 
And and I know we're jumping around because there's accounting <laughs> now, there's there's you know, there's know. information systems, the there's university, uh, but at the same time, like there's this there's this kind of music, this this soulful right. essence that runs, this thread that runs. You're absolutely right, Kojo. Um it's not even it's not even by mistake that we're jumping around from all kinds of things because my life has felt like that, you know. I think back to how I've lived. And it has felt like a lot of jumping around between almost unrelated things, you know. Um, so even as our conversation pans out this way, I feel like it's being super true to how my life is to me when I think back to it. It was a mishmash of little nodes and points that were connected randomly by music, you know. Um, so yeah, my music, the musical side of me has always been a part of me. My earliest memory, for example, one of my earliest memories of the music side of me, i.e. the introduction to Zubs, was when, you know, my dad was a lawyer, yeah? And he used to have, um, he's passed away now, that's why I say was. Um, he used to have these law books, you know, when you grow up with a, you know, with an, an academic parents, you know, and I had two of them. So one had medical books, one had, you know, law books. So my dad had these thick law books and thin ones. So I, I, I found a way to take spools from my mother's sewing stuff that she used to do at home with sewing with she was a sewing machine i'll take some of her thread spools put them underneath the books the law books of my dad and with their differing thicknesses they had different resonance so i created homemade marimbas so i'll beat on these homemade marimbas right i've never told this story to anyone my only my family knows this story uh and i'd beat on these homemade marimbas and they'd make music you know, and I was super early at that point. And I think at that point, I was already starting to formulate what will become the essence of Zub's last letter, right? The instrumentation, the rhythm, the African instrument of it, you know? And then one day, I because my dad never used to like his books being taken and hidden, right? So I'd hide the books and I hid them for some reason where the rain uh. fell on them, bro. So they got drenched by the rain and my dad found out. Um, and I, I think I threw my sister under the bus at the time. I was like, yo, I think she did it. And my sister, I remember, ended up being in trouble for it. <laughs> and I ended up just letting her take the heat, you know? But uh, anyway, sibling vibes. So anyway, um, confessions of a black sheep. Uh, so, so that was probably my earliest memory of how I became Zub's last letter. But I mean, came to Rhodes, I was already rapping in the church in a Christian rap group at a Baptist church in, in Mabel Rain, the neighborhood I grew up in. Then I went to Rhodes and I was rapping on campus, uh, recording at a lady called Corin Coopers. She stayed just outside of campus, but provided campus with disco equipment, you know, disco party, the union, you know. She would come with all the equipment with a dude named Alex. She had a home studio. So I went over to her home studio with some of my friends on campus. We'd rap there already. And the essence of Last Letter was being, you know, molded some more even then. By the time I came to Joburg in 2000, Dude, Last Letter was already a real thing. Um, four years after that, my debut came out. But by then already, the rapper stroke, IT guy stroke, you know, Christian MC stroke, stroke was already there. How, how was the transition? Because I mean, growing up in, so growing up in Zim, uh, particularly during that era and having grown up in Lesotho, our, in some ways, our musical history um paralleled each other but was very different from south africa's because particularly with hip-hop um you know south africa was very insular 
So, you know, they didn't get a, it, you know, South Africa didn't get a lot of the stuff. I mean, I still, I still remember being in Vast in 1992 and a guy coming up to me and saying to me, um, I must teach you about this thing, this thing called rap. There's this new music that's come out and there's an album, I think it was The Chronic or something, Dr. Dre's The Chronic. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm a Houdini fan from like 84. <laughs> You know, and and I've just uh -huh. come back from a year, a year in Germany, um, during the kind of rise of one the native tongues and public enemy and X Clan, and then Hammer and Vanilla Ice and Kwame and all of these people, and and so it felt very much, we we had this kind of parallel you know parallel upbringing when it came to certain types of music, but South Africa was totally excluded from it. So now you're coming from Harare where you've had, you know, like Lost Boys went to Harare and, it, and, and guys were traveling and you're exposed to this, this world of music and then ending up in Rhodes. Did, did it have an impact? Yes, it did. Um, you and I are so similar in so many ways, Kojo, which is why we, I guess we bonded for so long, um, decades now. Um, it's 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 you're right it's it's one of the beauties of experiencing hip-hop globally at the time you and i experienced hip-hop in you know whether it was houdini or cameo and then through to you know ll and you know epmd or whoever and then just kind of progressing big daddy kane and then into biggie and jay and then nas and you know it was it was an experience shared by our generation worldwide which is why when you came to South Africa, um, because of the history we've had here in SA, they were also excluded from that. There was only a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of extremely traveled children in South Africa who got to experience what everybody else in their peer group was experiencing around the world. And today you find that it doesn't matter where I go in the world, if it's that generation, wherever you are, you could be from Osaka, Japan, you could be from, you know, uh, Turku, you know, in Finland, you could be anywhere in the world. If you say Cameo, Houdini, EPMD, Big Daddy, like immediately you connect with family, you know? Yeah. And that's why you and I bonded like we bonded. That's why I bonded with 99% of the people that are still around me, even to this day, uh, especially through hip hop, is because we share that. That, that inheritance um, and, and that sort of cultural legacy that hip hop gave us, you know? And then experiencing that in the African context made us, whether it was Zimbabwean, Zambian, Lesotho, Swati, Botswana, we all then became African iterations of this global movement, you know? Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was so beautiful to connect with those elements on campus when I came to Rhodes because there was a cat from Tanzania, for example, TZ, I connected with him because of hip hop, you know. There was a cat from uh, Swaziland. I connected with him because of hip hop, and all the cats in SA that were also part of that kind of, you know, mindset. I ended up befriending and connecting with, and even making music with. So, in a lot of ways, hip hop has been sort of my, um, you know, the glue and the oil that kind of binds the bonds together and lubricates the bonds, makes them makes them stick and makes them work, you know. Mm -hmm. It's, it's interesting, Koji. I don't know how you feel about this, but it's almost like you you and I, and I guess everyone else who experiences hip-hop the same way, we know each other's spirits and souls because we know hip-hop. Yeah. You get that, that sense. 
I mean, it's it's interesting because so in in my book, I talk about the let's call it the four elements of hip hop, right? Um, and or, or the five elements because I always believe knowledge of self is is one of them, right? Which which we talk about all the time, right? Um, and and it, it it was funny kind of writing writing about that because in my book, you know, I'm exploring my relationship, my father, my children, et cetera, et cetera. But still somehow I'm able to bring in the five percenters. <laughs> I'm able to bring in, you know, yeah. another world that's influenced how I understand the world. Yeah. Um, and, and like you're saying, because it's, it's, it's kind of tied to, it's tied to how you perceive yourself and how you interact with the world. Um, and it's not just, it's not just about the music and correct and it is tied to yeah. it's tied to a particular era you know um i mean it's weird like i collect i mean i collect hip-hop books right um so i collect books on the hip-hop history and because i'm a writer i've always i've always been drawn towards people who wrote about hip-hop not just the people oh. who create you know not just the people who did the graffiti or dj or mc'd but also the people who then documented it. And uh, yeah, so it's, 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 it's a weird thing. And it's also a weird space to be in because particularly when you interact with Americans, because for them, like, you know, American from New York who grew up in that era and, and you're having a conversation with them and you want to say, do you know what? I get it, but I've never been there. Like I've never been there. I was not there in that era, but yeah. I kind of, like, I get it. It must be such a trip for them when they interact with us to see just how much of them we know and how little of us they know, in spite of the fact that we seem to understand each other so well, yeah. you know? And, and for me, that, that connection, that, that, that other thing that would tie all of this in speaks to the soul and the spirit of hip hop, which is an energy and a sport. Like I said, it's an essence that binds us at a soul level um, you know, sub soul, soul is such a fluffy word. Our consciousnesses transcend our backgrounds and our countries and our, you know, our skin color and even, you know, our, our, our outlook, you know, mm. because our consciousnesses speak to the truth of who we are on a grander scale. Yeah. For whatever reason, hip hop in that era seemed to tap into that, you know. So when you started recording, um, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, there's a question I'm gonna ask, uh, but we'll get to that. But when you started, you, when you started entering the industry, so to speak, it still felt like you approached it from a slightly different perspective from everybody else around you. And what I mean by that was, I mean, this was also, you know, the rise of Guaido, hip hop was still finding its place. Um, particularly from a local perspective, but it was, you know, Mikwaito was our version of pop music. So it was, it was about what was popular, you know, what's driving the bashes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then you're coming out, you're coming out with a, with an art form or a, you know, a style of music that one is not mainstream, but you are not mainstream, even in how you create that music. <laughs> I completely understand what you're saying. I mean, again, it speaks to the uniqueness of my circumstances at the time. But when you when you thread those little dots together, you will see how it wasn't actually that obscure because 
I mean, think about it this way. I, because I worked with mutual friends, yours and mine, I worked with Black Rage Productions, right? So I worked with Maria McCloy, Luxuanos Kosana, Dino, and we worked in an industry that was connected at that time at, at, at very deep levels, you know? The guys who are on TV with the soapies would party with the guys who are making music, who would party with the guys who are producing the music, who would party with the journalists, and everybody would just kind of connect, right? So before I even started creating music, I was already a part of the industry. So I already had like some kind of education that came before most of my debut artist friends, right? Most mm. of my debutantes didn't get the chance to fraternize with Lebumatosa. I did, you know, uh, before I did my first album. So I was one. The other, because I came from, you know, this Zambia, Zim, this experience of campus where all kinds of cultures collide, I already had like a global perspective, at the very least continental, before yeah. I did my first record. Add to that the fact that I was older, you know, I didn't go straight from high school to drop in a record. Mm -hmm. I went straight from high school to varsity. In fact, I took a year gap, then I went to varsity, you know, and what that did was it gave me age and experience over my other fellow debutantes, right? And then add to all of that, I was the kind of child who grew up listening to, you know, EPMD and also Sting and Mr. Mr. on a radio station, right? Like, <laughs> so <laughs> I already had that education behind me. So you can imagine I had collided with poets like yourself at the time and people like T and, 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 and Lebumashile and all those people, I had collided with them before they even found themselves and I hadn't even done a debut record, you know? So you can imagine what that does to you coming out. You come mm. out different to, you know? You don't come out like everybody else. You come out unique and you come out with something, a quality about you that clearly stands out. It's not just another rap record from South Africa, you know? It's Listener's Digest. It's a, it's a dense, layered, uh, thick work of, work of, I don't know, oratory more than it is a musical album. But you only do that if you open yourself up to it. And not everybody's, not everybody's capable of, of kind of going, let me actually open myself up to it and, and go down this path. I don't know where it's going to end up, mm. but it's important for me to also honor, honor my journey, but honor the journeys of those around me who are influencing me. You're so right, man. You're so right. I mean, in the moment, you never think of it like that. But upon reflection, you do get to realize that, yes, there was an authenticity that almost owed it to the people that formed you and forged you into becoming who you were, that you owed it to them to carry on in their tradition, right, as an artist yourself. If you're going to contribute work in the spirit of Rakim, do something meaningful, do something powerful, right, in the spirit of the people, Heavy D, who inspired you to create fun tracks, but very dense tracks. Do something that inspires you, you know? But uh, I don't know, man. I think there's a bravery that comes with being an artist and you know yourself as an artist yourself uh, or creative. I know, I don't know how you define yourself. I, I fail to put you in any box because you fit in just about everything. You never retired as a poet, so. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible, but okay. <laughs> I don't know if I've told you, Kojo, that you can't retire from things like poetry, right? Uh, and, and, and a number of people have raised that and I'm like, but I... I mean, I used to do the open mics, right? And then one right, day, right. one day after six months, I said, do you know what? Actually, I am a poet. And then I started walking around and telling people I am a poet. So if I, 
my theory is that if I can do that, I can just as easily go, okay, do you know what? I'm no more a poet. <laughs> but funny Fair enough, enough. But, enough. Fun, yeah. but funny enough, and I think it, it, I mean, it also, I think it relates to the conversation, conversation with you and your journey is, mm -hmm. you know, funny enough, people take offense at that. And when it comes to you, I mean, I mean, like I know, so I have an understanding of your background. I understand, you know, I mean, even when you were working with Zeno and Maria and Kutuan and them, you were doing web development, for example. Like you were doing, you you're doing, you're doing what you studied for. But most people yes. know Zubs the MC. And so when Zubs the MC is not coming out with music, because Zubs the MC is going through this journey and trying to figure out what music means to him. The outside world goes, no, 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 but you can't do that. Like you can't, what do you mean you're right. not releasing another album? So right. I'm, throwing it, exactly. I'm throwing it back at you. Yes, you are. And I see how you're doing it there. You think you're slick, but you're not that slick. I see you. Uh, you're right. And that's where questions like, yo, man, when are you coming back? Come into it. Or have you retired? Come into it. And, and, and again, the reason why this whole conversation came about is because I was talking to you about the authenticity of being who you are as it, honoring the people that came before you, but more importantly, honoring the person that you are, right? So you are a poet, not because you do the poetry, you know what I mean? Because you are one, you know? Um, it's different to being, you know, a doctor because you operate at the table or the operating table. It's very different to that because with poetry and with, with hip hop, for example, uh, music in general, some of the things you do don't necessarily have the trappings, right, of the poetry or the music or the album or the song, but it is still a manifestation of the essence of the poetry. It's beautiful, it's metaphorical, it's deep, it's dense. Um, it, you know, it taps into an essence that speaks to, you know, the more, the more, you know, intangible side of our existence, art, okay? So that's why for me, I'm saying I hear you and I take your, I take your point on if I can decide today I'm an artist, I can also decide today I'm not. Fair enough, you're right, you can't do that. And you can therefore choose to be whatever you want. But you are still you, right? You are still you being a podcast host, right? <laughs> but what you are is Kojo is the podcast host. Just like Kojo is the man on stage spitting that poetry, Kojo is the author writing that book. Um, so when I see poet, I don't see the, you know, the, the stanza, I see Kojo, you know, um, and it's the same reason why, you know, I struggle, for example, to accept when artists that I love, like Oliver Mtukudi, for example, are gone, because it doesn't feel like he's gone, mm -hmm. because Oliver Mtukudi to me was music, right? So he speaks to me to this day, right? So as far as I'm concerned, he's alive, you know, uh, and that goes for Mams Bonile, it goes for everybody else who we've lost over time. The beauty of being an artist is not only accepting that, embracing it, and then deciding to do something with it. You know, um, especially once you become as an artist, you then learn that okay, that is part of my mandate as an artist is to do these things. Just a quick break to remind you that my book, Listen to Your Footsteps, is out and available on multiple 
platforms, whether it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or within South Africa, your exclusive books and take a lot, uh, please pick yourself up a copy and let me know what you think. How has how is your, how is your, your perspective on it changed and evolved? I mean, when you started, so you came out to Listener's Digest, you were coming out with albums, you were in the industry in inverted commas. Um, but you've also, as you, I mean, as is evident in terms of what you just talked about, it's like you've also been able to, to compartmentalize the, let's call it industry and the job of being an artist with, with the life of, of, of creating. And... Yeah. And, and, and at some stage, you, it feels like you kind of went, okay, I've created albums. Um, I, I'm evolving or I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out what is the next step for me. So I'm not necessarily going to be putting out albums, which, which is what everybody's, everybody kind of goes, well, you're a rapper. So when's the next album coming out? Uh, yeah, but in, a, in, in, your own, in your own way, you're still, you're creating but you have redefined what that creation means for you. What yeah, prompted what prompted that evolution and kind of where are you, like where were you and then where are you on that, let's call it on that journey? Nice. Um, when, you know, when you, are, when you live out of authenticity, right? You live out of the truth of who you are in every given moment. There's very little thinking going on. It's almost like you do what comes naturally, right? You do what comes instinctively. So if what comes instinctively is to go to the studio, no matter whether you're, you're booked or not, whether you have a session or not, but just go because Battlecat is there and Battlecat will probably make a beat. And when he makes a beat, you know, you might get moved to write, then you write, then you record. And then before you know it, you have an album, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is the same authenticity with which you approach over time. You know what? Maybe I'm not going to do an album this year or maybe I should, get my money from somewhere else other than shows. Or, you know what, maybe instead of doing a whole album, let me just feature this year on Versus. Like, these are the kind of decisions you make as the scenario around you changes. And because you live from a place of authenticity, you will be true to that scenario changing by becoming the version of yourself that fits in with that, you know? So me deciding not to put out albums isn't because I chose no more albums from now on. No, it's because there are no albums to put out right now. You know, I might wake up next week and hey, man, there's an album to put out. You know, uh, it's all about, you know, responding to the truth of where you are and what your environment calls out of you and how you interact with that. I think one of the challenges of being young is that you don't know it. You just keep doing it, thinking you're, you're doing something on purpose when you're not really, you're just spontaneous with it. But as you get older, you now start to realize, oh, okay, I see what this is. This is an album about to happen, isn't it? And then you start to put the pieces together. You start to be more deliberate with it, you know? So there's a fine line between choosing to do stuff as an artist as you get older and just having to respond to the necessity of becoming something as it is called of you over time. So uh, the question that I said, you probably know I'm going to eventually ask. I mean, we did a we did a program. It was for the BBC some years back, um, and when we did a workshop, one of the things that always fascinated me was was how you how you created in terms of how you crafted. And you, you mentioned Rakim earlier on, and it was it, it was inspired by him and was structured by him. 
So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to describe that process, but then I'd also like to find out whether it's still, as you've grown older, whether that's still the process or the, the lens that you use in terms of creating. I'm not sure exactly what you mean in particular. Because so, so, I mean, so what we were talking about was you were very technical in terms of how you actually wrote rhymes. Whereas, for example, I as, I as a poet used to just like, it, you're just like, you, you write, I would, and I still do that. Like I write and then I come back. Whereas I remember when you were describing, it was a very deliberate, like, this is, you know, this is the process. These are the steps I take. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I even remember where this first came out and why you dug into this particular memory, because we had a very powerful moment of skills exchange with a number of schools in Joburg. Uh, and you were part of that program with the British Council. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I'm proud to have shared that with you, actually, Kojo. It was deep. To this day, some of those young people meet me in the streets and they ask about you and they're like, yo, man, tell him I said hi. But anyway. I'm still in contact. I'm still in contact with a couple as well. And it's 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 so yeah, it's fascinating to watch them now as adult, well, grown-ups with kids and their own lives and everything else. And you kind of right. go, like, I remember you when. Right. When you were still in your high school uniform and you're writing a verse. You must remind me to tell you about uh, one of those experiences that I had recently. Um, maybe we'll do it one day, just you and I, over another drink, maybe something. Cool. Uh, we, we, uh, it, was, it was a very powerful moment, a full circle moment, by the way. It was just gorgeous. She, she ended up becoming a care worker, taking care of one of my family members. So it was so beautiful. But anyway, um, the process. Uh, quick shout out to Nomalang and the British Council, by the way. You guys changed our lives. Um, uh, the process is, is like you say, is very different to yours in the sense that once the idea comes to you, once you have been inspired, once now you know what's going on and themes have approached and a narrative is beginning to form in your mind, right? You then begin the technical process of piecing it together in a very structured way. This is hip hop after all. You're a rapper at the end of the day, you're an MC, you know? And as an MC, you play within certain confines. There's freedom within those confines, but a bar is a bar is a bar. A beat is a beat is a beat. Uh, a 16 is a 16 is a 16, okay? But what you do with that 16, that's where the magic happens. And that's where I start to then begin to map out a grid, a symmetrical grid because of the artist that I was raised under. My tutelage was under the mentorship of Rakim, right? Black Thought. So I, I write in symmetry. I write in, in lines that make sense when you cut them up there's a mess to where you put that line that syllable that rhyme so when i'm writing yeah there's the narrative there's the theme there's the story but then there's also this maths at play you know i like to think of it like you would think of writing a score you know there's notations involved and there's you know there's like a science to writing the score in classical music just like there's a science to writing the verse in hip-hop many mcs know this they just don't think of it when they do it. I mm -hmm. think of it. Others, as they become more aware of it, they start to think of it more and it makes them better rappers. That's why I gravitate towards artists like T, for example, because I can tell from the way he uses his pen that this guy knows about the math and the science and the symmetry of crafting a verse. And not only does he know it, he plays with it and innovates it. That's mm -hmm. where the genius comes in. So just long story short, 
there is a there is a there is a map it's a grid it's got symmetry and you slot your words and your rhymes in places where they they match and they form a pattern that is akin to a, a code of some kind like morse code you can read it and once you have the eyes to read it and decode it trust me it changes the game for you as a writer and also as a fan of hip hop music has that how has that evolved or has that changed i mean for example as you've started to explore this quote other sounds i mean as you started digging deep into for example the acoustic guitar etc cetera, etc cetera, where you're not you know we're not guaranteed that the next album that comes out of you is going to be a rap album no, or that you're going no. to be you know that you're going to be rhyming over um so how is there a way of bringing that thinking that grit to this called it other forms when you take out when you take out the mc when you take out the bars of bars of Yes, there is, you know, because that thinking and that thing is cannot be unthought, it cannot be unseen, and it cannot be undone in you. Once it's in you, it's in you. Um, it's formative almost in the sense that I, I know some writers like, you know, Billie Eilish, for example, her music comes from that place where she sees that code and she writes into it. Um, there are certain uh, musicians, um, Pops Muhammad is another, he sees that code and he mm. plays his aura outside of it deliberately. You know, it's, it's not something that is limited to just the hip hop verse. You can literally extend it to other things. That's why my journey with the guitar has been such a powerful, empowering move, you know. But what it's also done for me, Kojo, is it's, it's made me appreciate the way the young bucks are rapping these days. Because the young bucks, whether they know it or not and they acknowledge it or not, they've transcended that grid in a way that still somehow plays within it. And I'm not just talking about the ones who randomly just kind of mutter away through the song. I'm talking about the ones who mutter away, but don't be fooled by the muttering because this mutterer is not muttering like that mutterer because this mutterer understands the grid and has innovated the grid and it sounds so 2021. So it's really kind of given me a, a real appreciation of, of modern hip hop music and modern artists in a way that I guess I wouldn't have had with slightly more traditional artists because the traditional ones only had the traditional four of a four beat to write into where the grid was adapted to that. These young guns, man. I mean, her, for example, her is an MC, dude. Like uh, she mm. writes, an artist like her, Kojo, you, you quickly learn to pick up when artists are using this map, this grid, this almost scientific approach to their writing and their delivery. And you, you instantly recognize it when you hear it. And she's definitely got it going on with her stuff. Um, it's so beautiful, man. It's, it's a beautiful thing to hear. It's a beautiful thing to observe. It's definitely become a key informer of how I listen to music and definitely how I write music now. I mean, some of the stuff I'm creating now, I mean, I don't share much of it because it's, on, it's, it's at home, right? It's literally just an exercise of like, you know, self you know, self-improvement and stuff. But some of the stuff I'm doing at home with the guitar is, is yeah, it's it's still hip hop in the same way Pops Muhammad is hip hop. <laughs> in the same way mm -hmm. hip hop. I mean, so in essence, you have created that, you have created that division between, um, let's call it like work um, and life yeah. and your music. 
because you know for a lot of people it's once you get into music music is the thing that's your profession that's the thing that looks after you you know that's the thing that pays the bills um so once you with the, that separation what do you do to keep food on the table um so I, I learned early because of the era that i was you know i became a professional hip-hop artist in that hip hop was never going to be enough to, to feed me, you know? So I've never really had a full-time hip hop gig. It's always been, you know, um, yeah, there's the hip hop side of things, no matter whether or not your summer nominated is irrelevant. The point is you need to eat, right? Mm -hmm. So you always knew that you had to find a way to, you know, to pay the rent and eat. Um, and luckily for me, uh, I was born resourceful, right? I was always going to find a way to make a marimba out of my father's books, right? <laughs> so that kind of energy kind of <laughs> continued to this day. You find a way to take whatever skills have been endowed upon you by God over time, by your parents, uh, your skills, your education, your friendships, your networks, all those things. You find a way to make those things um, make you a way, you know, help you see your way through. So over the years, I've created websites for people. Uh, I've done voiceover work. Um, um, I've, I've built bots, you know, all kinds of things that have been um, my source of sustenance over and above the hip hop. To be honest, the hip hop really does a lot to take care of me. The Zubs side of things, the last letter side of things has really been the catalyst to a lot of sustenance. But um it's more the holistic approach to being the artist that I am that has ensured that I have been able to survive. And it's not a story unique to me, Kojo, you know, it's a story that I think applies to a lot of artists the world over. There's only a tiny minority of us who will be able to say, we only eat by our art, you know. Uh, the yeah. majority of us will have to find other creative ways, a podcast here, a book there, a radio show here, you know. And I think it's been interesting that because, I mean, like you said, when you came into the industry, you were, you had already gone through some growing up, you know, and you went to university and you, you, you know, you'd lived and you're interacting with people who are coming to the space very young, is that we're now living in a world where, you know, people live with the bits and pieces, you know, like, uh, I think there's an old Scottish saying, saying what many a mickle mucks a muckle, which is, you know, many small things make one big thing. Um, and now in this, this world, in this era that we're living in, people are recognizing that, that you can live, you know, you can have the different tentacles and all of that makes a profession. But you've kind of been doing that for years as it is. Yeah, and doing it well and doing it badly doing it profitably, doing it for naught, you know, doing it terribly and doing it extremely well and learning as I go. In, in, in a way, my entire life has been the pandemic lockdown. But yet again, none of this is new. Yeah, I know that's something none that we talk about a lot in terms of, yeah, in, yeah, terms, exactly. in terms of the world, the, the world freaked out and we're just like, oh, okay, well, welcome. This is what it looks like. <laughs> Absolutely. You and I have lived the reality of what most people are starting to adapt to pretty much all our professional lives. Um, it, it really is a, an artist's mind, an artist's way, a creativity that says, what are you going to do with the uncertainty that tomorrow holds? Okay. 
how you're going to create a certain tomorrow for yourself that is independent on your environment, you know? How will you take your tools and make the most out of them? That thinking is the artist's way of thinking and, and it has been for time. I think we have been ushered by things like university, our learning systems, our societal systems to kind of step out of that mode of thinking so that we end up thinking it is external to us and we give it a name like artist way when actually it's actually just it's just the survival way it's the way of being yeah you aren't supposed to be comfortable in a nine-to-five you aren't supposed to think oh my life is sorted now i've got an education or whatever i got a degree therefore i'll be fine you aren't supposed to think that everything is honky-dory because your company has been around for 200 years or whatever it doesn't work that way not in the real world and it took the pandemic to let most people know but artists we knew that though we we knew that now we just know it even more yeah yeah no doubt and and so what's as we kind of wind down um it, it always feels it it feels weird having these conversations because um i've taken the easy way out and that a lot of the people that i have conversations with on the podcast are people that i have conversations with all the time anyway uh, so sometimes it's like, which question do I ask that doesn't reveal too much? Um, but it's just in terms of in terms of your where we are today um, and the journey that you've gone through to reach this point, um, what does tomorrow look like for you? I mean, what what is it that you're going? Okay, this is you know this is what I'm working towards. Um, I mean, look, first of all, you've done a fantastic job of separating our personal relationship, which is very private and not to be shared with uh, this, what we're doing now, a conversation that is also very intimate and very personal, but to be shared. And you've done it really well. Yeah. Oh, shout out, man. Um, I, I've been lucky, you know, all my life of God, God seems to put people around me that unlock the next level. They unlock, they unlock the next stage. My wife is one of those. Um, my wife is an integral part of what has been the last 10 years of my life and what will be the next rest of it, I hope, you know. Um, and so that's that's kind of where the, the jump off will, will stem from, is more of a us thing than a me thing. It's always been us. Um, one, one thing artists, especially solo artists, seem to be able to fool the world into thinking is that everything has always been about them. Michael Jackson made the music. It was Michael Jackson who was the legend. But now nah, there was a lot of people that were who Michael Jackson was. And for me going forward, it's those people that I'm going to be spending most of my time and effort and energies with and nurturing and cultivating, you know? Uh, I don't know if I've spoken to you about this, Kojo, but um, throughout my entire rap career and my, my entire stay here, actually, in, in South Africa, my life here, my adolescence, I haven't shown up for family like I would have wanted to, you know, birthdays, births, funerals, those kind of things, because hip hop is all consuming, all consuming. Mm -hmm. When your home is spread across countries and continents, you know, you really miss out on some of the nuance of being a family member. So there's been a lot of family member work, the hard family member work that only time can do for you that has been put in over these last 10 years and definitely going through my immediate and hopefully long-term future. So that's pretty much the bulk of it. It's very boring. It's very not about anybody else. And it's very so not last letter, but it's very important to me. 
outside of that, I am exploring the other side of what makes me grown, what makes me, uh, you know, a productive member of South Africa, productive member of the hip hop community and the art community in general. So I'm also exploring podcasts like you, uh, unlike you, you know, I don't have the consistency you have <laughs> for the discipline, but uh, other avenues of embracing where dissemination of content is going to in, you know, in, in the future. And then hop, skip and jump, you know, as whatever comes our way, we deal with. That's, that's pretty much the long and short. Actually, last question. <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked you this. Zab's the last letter. Where does that come from? That is, the reason why you haven't asked me that is because there never really is like an actual answer to that. Um, it's one of those things, you know, those dumb things you do as a kid where you're like, yo, man, everyone calls me Zab's. I need to add something else in it, you know, and because again, you're raised by Abu Rakim who called themselves the 18th. It's just like, you always find yourself, did, yeah. yeah, you always find yourself kind of augmenting these things on some rap tip. But uh, how I like to explain it is there's a Z and a Z um, in my name, which speaks to kind of the countries that I call home. Azania with the Z, right? Zim with the Z, so it only makes sense. There's a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, on the Zs in my life, you know. Uh, so I think I think the last letter becomes more than just a moniker, right? It becomes almost symbolic of um, of who I am. Um, and then maybe eight mm. on, on one of my songs and the first album, maybe eight. I was the last one to rap, right? And and I'm, I'm always in the starting lineup, but I I, I start I stop, you know, close the collabo type thing. It's like your know, final word, last letter, you know. Um, so yeah, there's there's layers to it, but it's not that deep to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> my man, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure, Kojo. Um, just real quick, man, congratulations on the pod. Congratulations on the book, my guy. Um, I know how much time and effort it took to to get it here, and I've seen the journey. I've felt the journey a lot. Um, I'm so glad I got to meet your dad the one time when you had that birthday celebration and we were there enjoying it. Together, um, what an honor, bro, to have to have experienced a lot of this journey with you, and it feels great to be part of this podcast as well. So, I look forward to episode one hundred and fifty. And fifty. Now I got you. I got you. I remember. <laughs> Thank you so much, bro. What a dope one, man. I appreciate. It. All right, man. Chat peace soon. Indeed. Peace, peace, peace. Thank you for listening. That's another episode of the Listen to Your Footsteps podcast with myself, Kojo Buffer. Technical producer and editor is Ntlangano Shabalala. Theme music is from my young teenage son, Kweku Buffer. Please do subscribe um, on wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and leave a review to help us get a sense of how you're enjoying or not enjoying this podcast have yourselves a wonderful week we'll be back again next week